You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. I was in London recently, Eric, and one thing I've uh, learned about being in London is that you're kind of a superman in the ETF space, but you have sidekicks. And one of them uh, has been on the show a couple times, Tom Serafagus. He's relocated to London recently. Yeah. He's like, he's like a mini you, but over there. Yeah, effectively. The Robin to your Batman. I guess so. I, you know, I think Tom is his own man. Uh, he's much more of an expert in smart beta and multi-factor uh, research than I am. For sure, he's our smart beta expert. But the reason he went to London, he was here for a full year, and we kept getting the same uh, reply from clients. I love this data set on the library, or I love this note, but can you do it for Europe? But can you do it for Europe? But can you do it for Europe? And we got this so many times that we thought, okay, we should just do it for Europe. And Tom is being sent there to do it for Europe. So I, I went to the pub with him, bought him a pint. We have an incredible office, this little pub around the corner. We took him there and started kicking some stuff around with him. And we just started talking about ETFs in Europe. And I thought, this would actually be a really good episode. And he happens to be back in New York now on like a spring break, I guess. And we said, why don't, why don't we talk to him about what he's learned in the little baptism he's had in Europe? Yeah, I think it's good to think global sometimes, the ETFs. They trade on, I think, last time I checked, 70 exchanges around the world. Europe is the second biggest area after the United States. But it is different. And the culture is different. The regulations are different. And kind of it was a, it's a good excuse to get some perspective on how investors in another country uh, do it and have some similarities and differences. The U.S. is somewhat spoiled because it's just the U.S. Over there, there's all these different countries. They've got different currencies. We sometimes refer to it as the Wild West in terms of trying to tame that beast, which is all these different uh, like legacy uh, situations that make it hard to just do certain things that are easy in the U.S. And so Tom has his work cut out for him. Okay, so joining us on this episode of Trillions, Tom Serafagas, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. This week on Trillions, five surprising things about the European ETF market. Tom, welcome back to Trillions. Thanks for having me. Can you me. say your first name again? Athanasios. Oh, okay. it's, and it's last a, name? Zarephagus. Okay. It's, uh, I have a much easier time in Europe getting, getting by I with bet, that name. Right? He, he's yeah. our version of the Greek freak, <laughs> which is a basketball player, for those who don't know, from the Bucks, with a crazy Greek name. So, Tom, how do you like London so far? Uh, it's great. Yeah, it's uh, it's going great. Uh, I've always, uh, you know, I've been to London before. So, uh, you know, before I decided to go, I had to make sure I liked the city. So it's sort of just like a cleaner version of New York, a uh, little bit of a slower pace, but uh, so far so good. And talk to me about what you've learned since you've been there. So I think Eric sort of like alluded to it in the intro with the ETF market. I didn't mean ETFs. I, I meant oh, life. <laughs> life. It's much slower paced uh, and they take their holidays very seriously they're, yeah, the, the, they're yeah. called holidays yeah they are called holidays and apartments are called flats 
yep. the elevators, the lift. So you sort of have to get used to, you know, it's like the, English, but not. <laughs> so that is actually a perfect transition into ETFs, right? So what's it like over there? So I would say overall, it's the same but different, right? And so, huh. Huh. Right. That's kind of so perfect. can we end the podcast there? Is that it? So, <laughs> so overall, um, you know, they do want to be like the US, but um, some things Eric had alluded to, they're just, they're not there yet. They're, you know, I think the biggest thing is we call it Europe, right? But when you think about it, it's all these regional markets all put together. They're all very different. They have different mentalities. They have different investor bases. Uh, There's a lot of fragmentation in Europe. So I think as they move sort of trying to be more centralized, the market's going to grow faster. But um, they really want to grow. I think they. it's sort of why we even decided to put an analyst search because they asked for for content. They're like, we really want more help into helping figure out this market, um, which is why we're in the position that we're in. So um, I think it's going to keep continuing to grow. Not to say it doesn't have its own hurdles, but... Okay, so you brought with you something like five mind-blowing facts. Are they going to blow my mind and Eric's mind or just mine? I'm going to pretend my mind is blown because <laughs> I probably know these, but I when I first saw them, I, my, my mind was blown. So I'll go back to, to that feeling of, of not knowing. Yeah, I think some Eric might <laughs> know. Yeah. But Joel will That's definitely a, have yeah. his mind blown. Some Eric might know. Um, I think any of the ETF nerds listening are going to be sort of blown away. But there's some other ones that I think Eric didn't know about. Okay, um, drop your hammer. So let's start with the first one. Um, there are actually way more ETFs in Europe than there are in the U.S. There's about almost 3,000 in Europe. There's only about 2,300 or so in the U.S. But asset-wise, we're at $3.6 trillion here, less than a trillion in Europe. Right, so hmm. way more products much fewer assets. And that goes back to the thing I was talking about, fragmentation, right? So if you are, so what you end up finding here is we have three S&P 500 ETFs, but in Europe you have like 50 stock 600 ETFs, right? Because of all that fragmentation. So if you are an issuer launching a product in the UK, you're going to launch a similar product in France, in Germany, etc. So you end up having a lot of these copycat products. And because of that, you end up having a lot more products out there. But the assets, so when you sort of look at assets per product, it's much less in Europe. So the, so literally it'll be the same ETF, but listed on different exchanges? Yep. And like different exchanges. And also the thing that we are not used to here in the US, there's share classes there, right? So if you buy an ETF that pays a dividend, you're getting that dividend. In Europe, you get to pick, do I want the dividend? Do I want the dividend being reinvested? So there's all these nuances that you don't um, sort of appreciate being a U.S. investor. So that's interesting because I think it, there's a little behavioral economics in there, which is when you have too much choice, maybe it's a bad thing. And when you talk about all those different products, are we talking about if you are, are you, are they cross-listing on all these different exchanges or do they actually go to that country and domicile and come out with a fresh new product in that country? No. So what it'll be is um, there's also issuers in all different countries, right? So there's DWS, right? Which is German. There's uh, iShares. There's the French issuers. So a lot of them, what they do is, okay, so like French clients are going to buy from the French issuers. So the French companies are going to launch the, you know, the, their broad benchmark ETFs. DWS is going to launch this broad market ETF. iShares, Vanguard, et cetera. So you end up having a lot of the same products just launched in the different respective markets. Um, and then on the cross listings, that's one thing too. But there's also different share classes, which we don't have here in the U.S. That's a that's a very new thing for anyone who's sort of been trained in the U.S. and going over to Europe. Uh, and they also have different currencies. Again, a thing we don't really have to deal with here. So there's a lot more decisions that go into buying an ETF. There, do I want this? Do I want the dividends? And what currency do I want? A currency hedge? And then what currency? The franc, the euro, the pound. All right. So there's all these decisions that go into buying an ETF that we don't that we're not necessarily used to here. Okay, so related, what are people investing in if they're not investing in ETFs? 
uh, active mutual funds. So like here, again, the, the whole the big battle there is sort of active uh, active mutual funds versus ETFs. Um, and then a new piece of, reg, uh, reg, of regulation went into effect last year, which is MIFID too. And that was really trying to shine the light on the cost of active, right? Active funds are much more expensive. And research plays a big part in that. It does. And the unbundling of research and ETFs just naturally are going to be the beneficiary of that, right? As there's more scrutiny on costs uh, and that comes to light. Uh, and there's sort of trying to get away from the commission-based models, which have been really big in Europe. Uh, ETFs are just naturally going to so, benefit. So let me just pause there. This is major. To me, this is the biggest catalyst for ETF growth in the U.S., which is the shift away from the commission model. So all these wealth managers and advisors were getting paid by the mutual fund. It's kind of like a kickback. And that's what determined whether you were in, in this fund or that fund. That sh- That's dying. And the new form is fee-based, which essentially just means the advisor gets a percent of the client's assets. And once they're getting a percentage of that pie, of course, they're motivated to pick cheap stuff because now it's coming out of their money too. If the, if in the U.S. we are, say, I don't know, in the sixth inning of that move, some people may debate that, but let's just say we're in the sixth inning. Where are we in Europe from the broker, the commission broker model to the fee-based model? Sure. I would say we're probably late first inning because wow. MIFID just went into effect last year, right? So it's just all now bringing on that, that shedding that light on it. And when these things pass, it's never perfect, right, from the get-go. It's like, okay, we're going to pass this regulation, and it's going to be perfect. They're still sort of, the industry still started, still trying to figure it out. So it's still very early innings in Europe on sort of that transition over there. And so. culturally, are people a little less uh, okay paying more in Europe? Because in the, in the U.S., whether it's Amazon or ETFs or Vanguard, whatever, people are pretty... We're like professional consumers. I mean, we are a consumer culture, and we're very sensitive to cost. We will go to the Make cheaper Make it product. cheaper and deliver it to me. Yeah. So are they that intense over there when it comes to that culturally? I would say not. And it's even this goes back to the distribution. The way it's handled in Europe is you go to your bank, right? And your bank handles everything. So I have my mortgage and my savings account and my investment account at my bank. And I had that because my dad had that. So when my dad passes the account to me, I'm not moving it because it's convenient. It's there. I already know the advisor. They're charging me whatever they're charging me, and they're putting me in their active funds. So, yeah, there is this huge uh, – the, the cost obsession isn't as big in Europe. And we actually see it in the flows, and I've, I've studied this. Um, here, right, if an ETF cuts its fee by a basis point, everyone sort of shifts over. In Europe, it's just they're not that obsessive on cost. Yeah, I think as more education comes and there's more – more of the regulation gets put to the to the forefront, it'll the obsession I think will start to pick up. Feels like the land before time, you know. It's like twenty years ago. <laughs> we'll get there. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
All right, my mind is not blown, but you know, I've got you've impressed me. It's dented. It's dented. There you go. Uh, factoid number two. Okay, I think this one is an interesting one, and it's on Vanguard, right? So they, you cannot talk about the mar- the industry here and not bring up Vanguard. They are such a big powerhouse here. They're sucking up all the flows. They're changing the advisor model, everything here. In Europe, they don't have that same sort of, uh, no one really knows who Vanguard is, right? So the, the number two issuer here, they're like number six in Europe. They have 25% market share here, only 4% in Europe. So what I think is really interesting is that here Vanguard doesn't really have to do anything. Like everyone knows they're Vanguard, they're cheap, and all the money's flowing to them. In Europe, they sort of have to go out and promote themselves. Like, hey, we're Vanguard. This is what we're doing. Uh, you know, we do ETFs. Hey, hey we're, we're kind of a big deal. Yeah, we're a big deal. <laughs> you guys know about us? We're from Pennsylvania? Yeah. Hey. So I think it's really interesting that you sort of see them not in the top tier firm they're sort of like in the second tier and they actually have to like hustle and work and like sort of do all the work that the other firms have to compete with them here in the u.s so they've that role sort of reversed in europe for them if they're sixth right uh uh we, blackrock is where what are they blackrock is one so one. that's yeah so, so they, okay so it's not like a u.s thing it's just they were late going there maybe they were late and but they are sort of what we've seen here with like jp morgan being really aggressive i see that with vanguard over there like they're opening they're opening up new offices they're really building out their sales teams so they're really sort of in ramp up mode when i feel like here they're sort of just sitting back and sort of just collecting all the money the fish are jumping in the boat here yeah exactly yeah they take in like a little over a billion a day here how quickly have they risen in the ranks though they're rising very quickly i think Every issuer has their eye on them because they've seen the success they've had here. Um, and it's interesting. They're not the cheapest ones out there in Europe. Really? Uh, there are other firms that are cheaper than they are. But all their ETFs, are there. you can kind of see them like starting to warm up. Like They sort of have like the picture of the bullpen. Like They're starting to warm up, and everyone's <laughs> starting to watch them because they've just seen what they've done here. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they've been really aggressive with hiring. So, um, what's the football metaphor? It's like he's got the the like the kicker starts like yeah, putting, uh, on the side, yeah, exactly yeah, right. into the net thing. By the way, have you picked a team yet? A, cl- uh, a club, sorry. So I've always liked the the Hotspurs from a long time ago. Now they're good, and everyone accuses me that I like them now. What? But the yeah, Tottenham Hotspurs. We're talking. This is soccer. Yeah, yeah <laughs> sorry, it's football? not the San Antonio Spurs. Football. So, yeah. Right, so, I'm re- I'm actually startled that Vanguard. Is that sort of you know up and coming over in Europe? Blow my mind with another fact. <laughs> okay, um, retail investors, right? They have been really the ones that have been behind a lot of the growth here in the U.S. So if you sort of look between retail and institutional, it's about a fifty-fifty split here. It's very small in Europe. It's only about eleven percent in Europe. It's really small. Um, and again, that Why? goes back to the the commission model, right? Because everything is at your bank. Your bank's handling everything. They're on the commission model, so they're putting you in mutual funds. I'm right? going to put out a theory. Is this because uh, everyone's taxed at a higher rate in Europe, and therefore they don't have as much disposable income to just do their own investing on the side? Uh, I think it goes back to the that could be it, but also the convenience factor. Like it's just the mentality is very different there. So here you start a job. What's the first thing you do? You fill out your 401k form, right? And you're sort of like have your own IRA. In Europe, it's different. They don't sort of have this do-it-yourself like investing culture as much as we do here. So retail just hasn't really adopted it as fast. The other they also thing don't is, have 401ks. They don't. But you know they don't and have 401ks. Time out. And by the yeah. way, by retail we mean advisors and do-it-yourself retail. Correct. That is stunning. In the U.S., I think that number is probably more like 80%, and it's 11% there. I mean, retails where the majority of the flows come in advisors. Institutions use them, but more to trade and adjust their portfolio. It's more like for liquidity. 
That is stunning. And I think it does speak to that incentive. If the middleman is incentivized to get the kickback from the mutual fund and they get paid more that way, why on earth would they move to an ETF or something that doesn't pay them? And this is part of what happened here. But now I think people actually look for the fee-based model, which some people are will use fiduciary. That's the big word that's used here for that model, which is acting in your client's best interest. So it sounds like fiduciary is not a big deal over there. So I don't want to be clear, and this goes back to when we say Europe, right? So some countries have moved away from that commission model. So like the UK, like the Netherlands have sort of banned that, but other countries haven't, right? This this goes back to the nuance and the fragmentation in Europe. So yeah, you might see UK might have a bigger chunk of retail and advisors than they do in other you know in other countries too. So I think as it gets more centralized and more of that models adapted across Europe, we'll eventually see it. But for now, it's really mostly institutional. Like it's for for tactical moves or or like or, or positions in a big portfolio. I was over there and I met with an issue. I won't say who, but I was I was you know naive, I guess. And and they pointed out they said they said here's what people are paying for for everything. Their advisor fee. I'll add it up. It came to like six to eight percent. You know, that's the fund fee, which is like two percent, then the advisor fee, and then the uh, the loads. You start adding it up; it was all like six to eight percent. Um, here, you know, you might pay one percent for your advisor, and then twenty basis points for your funds. So that is that's a large difference, and I think this is probably what a lot of the U.S. issuers, as this market here gets so competitive on price, they're seeing opportunity there. And that's why you see not just Vanguard, but other U.S. companies go over there to try to sort of be first as that model moves. They'll be there with the, the products. Totally. They could probably squeeze a little bit more in Europe yet before all that. Because we're starting to see really cheap products start to launch now, but they're just launching now, right? So I think there's still a little bit of room for them to be able to make uh, make a little bit of money in there. And all the, like you said, all the U.S. issuers are over there now. Either they started up their own teams there or they bought someone to already have some of the infrastructure in place. Okay, I want you to turn up the volume. Give me something big. All right. <laughs> I think this one's big, and it's not specifically for ETFs, but I think it's going to bring it full circle. And it's sort of like this this policing on closet indexing, right? So what that means is there are funds out there that, that charge a lot more than, say, a cheap ETF, but they don't look any different than the benchmark, right? So in the UK, they got really strict on this, and they basically went in and said, okay, we're going to look at all the funds, and if you are just a closet indexer, we are going to flag you, and we're going to make you pay back some of the fees to investors, right? So last year, $34 million in fees actually went back to investors. This is actually a big deal. This is huge. It's like people are looking at portfolios and being like, you're actually not doing what you're saying you're doing. Exactly. So they basically looked at um, a bunch of things. They're basically like, are you giving the value that you're saying that you're doing? So it was basically a mix of qualitative data that they did, but also like quantitative. So they went in and said, okay, let's see your marketing materials. How are you marketing this fund? Right? Are you marketing as sort of like this active fund and making all these decisions? The emperor has no clothes. Yes, exactly. In Europe, they're much more aggressive about sort of honing in on these closet indexers. Here, I feel like investors sort of know. They'll look and they'll say, hey, this is a closet index. I'm going to move my my funds. There, there's a lot of scrutiny. And what's eventually going to happen is you have ETFs on one side. You have the closet indexers in the middle. Then you're sort of like the high active, sure active. They're basically coming in the middle and splitting it. Right? They're going to So naturally, that split is going to put a lot of money back into ETFs in Europe. So this is fascinating. I call it the closet indexing police. Whenever I post this on Twitter, everybody 
usually has a negative reaction. They're like, don't you know, you can't police this stuff. Um, but I see what Europe's doing in the U.S. I think uh, a lot of this happens naturally. People have gone like we call the trend from going from closet indexing to actual indexing. That's why if you look at the Fidelity Magellan or a lot of these big, old, traditional active equity funds, the holdings look a lot like the S&P 500. And a lot of people, are those are the funds they're leaving. Why pay 1% for that when you can get just about the same thing for five basis points? Um, again, in Europe, maybe people aren't doing it as naturally and the, and the regulators are trying to just push this a little. Here's the issue, though. And I've come to feel a little sorry for the closet indexers because if you if you take a lot of active bets and a lot of active share – you will not sell as much as the fund uh, because it's the middlemen who don't want anything to look that crazy on the statement. So they actually, it's because of advisors having career risk that they they don't want actual true active. They may say they do, but they actually want it close to the S&P. That way it doesn't, in a bad year, it doesn't return much worse than the S&P. And the client goes, oh my God, why am I down 30% it sounds of this? like you want it both ways. That's what I'm saying. So it's the demand from the advisors that has the active mutual funds here hugging the benchmark a little because they don't want to get lose assets. This is what Peter Krauss was saying in our in our podcast with him a couple months ago. He he hates this too. He thinks this is just protecting your assets. But again, the advisors' demand is behind a lot of this, and they don't. The focus is always on the active mutual fund, but the advisors are really the one asking for it because they. They may not want to buy two Vanguard funds and call it a day because the client may go, why am I paying you? So they want something that has like different to it, but might have returns that are close to the S&P so they don't look bad or get fired. So in a way, closet indexing is uh, by, de- you know, by design and by demand. It's If you went to high active share, you would be more active and you'd be truly active, but the client would have to weather a bunch of down years and some real steep drawdowns. Because over, you know, that's how true active goes. You don't win every year doing a real true active strategy. So I, I find this issue to be very complicated and not as simple as like, oh, these active mutual funds are uh, really not doing their job. Um, it's all about incentives and, and keeping your job and keeping the assets. And I think it's just the system that has created all this. Light it up. Give me number five. Okay, so this one is a little bit nerdy, but it's sort of sometimes in Europe. God, I, you I, I notice some things that they're much more advanced in other things in certain things, and much be and behind in other things in the U.S. But here, and I think this has come up a lot, especially for small issuers. It's about payments to market makers, right? And what happens in the U.S. if you're a small issuer with a new product that doesn't trade a lot, you're at a disadvantage, right? No one's really buying your product. Someone goes to buy it, they know the spreads are tight. In Europe, you can actually incentivize a market maker to come in and provide liquidity for that product. It's banned in the U.S., but in Europe, allows it. They they let it do it. They let you do that. Um, I think it's interesting that they do that because sort of a lot of issuers here have been petitioning to have it done. Europe has already been okay with that. Um, so I think that's a huge difference uh, in Europe. And what I think that ultimately might do is a lot of the smaller issuers are going to have sort of a better shot at being able to raise some assets than in the U.S. because it's really competitive being a small issuer going up against some of the larger firms here. Um, And oh, here's the most important question. How do you pronounce S-M-A-R-T hyphen B-E-T-A? Well, I'm going to pronounce it smart beta. Over there, you have to pronounce it smart beta. Okay. Beta. That, okay. That's when he, he comes back. I have, I have a if bigger If he starts one. saying smart beta, he's let's, coming right back. Let's, let's see how you're, if he's still American. <laughs> Ready? Yeah. Can you say aluminum? 
Aluminum. Okay. okay. Not yeah. aluminium, right? That's next level. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like level that, four. That's when you just know it's yeah. like, no. Th- th- then you, it's too late to ask him back. Yeah. yeah. Tom, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Tom Serafagas at T. Serafagas. Good luck spelling that. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.